Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. came to my attention this week, you're probably not as daft as I am, but it took me a little time to figure this out. This might be the only time in your life, saying that slowly, hesitantly, that you might hear a sermon on Exodus 30, verses 1 through 16. Don't want to be presumptuous. Maybe you've heard a sermon on Exodus 30 before. Maybe I have. I don't remember, honestly, if I have or not. But I wonder if we approached God's word like that every Sunday. Like, this might be the last time I hear this text preached to me. This might be the last time that I I have some time to meditate on this text of Scripture in this way with God's people in God's presence. There's some pressure that goes with that. (laughs) This might be the last sermon that you hear on Exodus 30. Lord, be merciful to me. (laughs) But we trust in God's word that never fails. His word is always faithful and always true. So with this in mind, would you stand with me as we read Exodus chapter 30, the first 16 verses. As I get to the end of verse 16, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And together we will say thanks be to God because we are thankful. As it is a week particularly to be thankful. Exodus 30, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on the horns once a year, 
with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. When you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give his life. Give this, a half shekel, according to the, to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than, ha- than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Children are particularly good at asking big questions. And sometimes very complex questions. Do you ever ask big questions? When children ask these questions, they do not easily let us off the hook with a pat answer that we would give to them just to quiet them down. Pat answers are often offered up because we really don't know the answer to their big questions. We are just oftentimes perhaps repeating what we have heard other people say. Children are not satisfied with pat answers. Sometimes we are not satisfied with pat answers either. We want an answer that satisfies, an answer that makes sense to us, an answer that brings us to the truth. I have found other people who often like to ask big questions, but they never really want to hear the answer to those big questions. They are so enamored with the question that they fail to hear and accept the answer. And so they are not satisfied with any answer because really they don't want an answer. The danger is that they never arrive at the knowledge of the truth. The Bible deals with big questions. 
questions that concern the beginning of all things, that concern the end of all things, and everything in between. The Bible answers the big questions that we hear, and it gives us the ultimate answers to those big questions. And one of the big questions of the Bible, if not perhaps the biggest question in the biblical text, is this. How is it that sinful man can have fellowship and be accepted in the presence of a holy God? How is it that sinful man can be accepted by God and even dwell with God in his perfect glory? This is the great dilemma for us. The answer is actually really simple. If man is left in his sinful state, he cannot have fellowship with God. A sinner who remains dead in his sin has no access to God. Notice the problem is not with God, the problem is with us. It is because of our own sin that we are separated from God. And I fear that the great dilemma can sometimes be diminished or forgotten even among those who claim to be Christians. The dilemma is diminished because people have domesticated God. They have sought to tame God, to make God more palatable, to make God more acceptable to man's mind, easier to swallow, to bring God down to their own level and judge him by their own understanding and their own reason. When one downplays the holiness of God and disdains the idea of the sinfulness of man, then the dilemma disappears. And it might happen far more often than we would like to admit or realize. And so in an effort to seem more tolerant, people are unwilling to say there is only one way to God. They are unwilling to say that mankind is totally depraved. They refuse to talk about sin or about God's anger and judgment and wrath, even denying that there is such a place called the lake of fire. But we know deep down that ignoring the dilemma or despising the dilemma will not make the dilemma disappear. In order for sinful man to dwell with God, something has to change. And it is not with God, it is with man. Man cannot, in his sinful state, in his fallen state, dwell with God, what does he need? He needs to be forgiven of his sin. He needs to be cleansed from his sin. He needs a new heart to be given to him so that he is willing to forsake sin and pursue God by obeying God and his word and submitting to him and to his word. But how is this kind of change even possible in someone's life? The Bible says that man in his sinful state, is dead. What can a dead man do? Nothing. So how is it possible for sinful man to dwell in the presence and fellowship with the holy God? 
It is only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That is the answer to the dilemma. Atonement has to be made. And the only one who can make that atonement is Jesus Christ. The only way any of us are able to dwell in God's presence is because of Jesus. There is a hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. And it summarizes both the question and the answer quite nicely. As it says this, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. It is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that you find atonement. Atonement is what enables you to be at one with the Lord. That is the old English idea of the word atonement. It is at one. Atonement is needed so that you can be at one with God. To be at peace with the Lord. To be a part of God's family. To be unified with God. Are you at one with the Lord? And how many of our problems arise from not feeling or remembering that we as Christians are at one with the Holy God? It is this word, atonement, that is the glue that holds our text of Scripture together this morning. You see it there in verses 10. And then also verses 15 and 16. Again and again, as the Lord is giving these instructions to Moses there on the mountain, and now he's telling him about the construction of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting, and all of that which is to go into the tabernacle and into this tent of meeting. And now we come to this altar of incense and then this census tax. And what is it that holds these two events together? It's atonement. And as we learn about the atonement that is made in connection with with each of these, it opens our understanding of how we are to live before the Lord. And so let us look at two ways the atonement helps our understanding of how we're to live before the Lord. Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that is helpful this morning. You'll find blanks there to fill in. But number one, when atonement is made, we understand the priority of prayer. When atonement is made, we understand the priority of prayer. As Yahweh has been instructing Moses about the tabernacle, he's also called it the tent of meeting. That designation really tells us about the function of this tent. It's a place where the priests were to go and serve and where they were to meet with God. It's where Moses would go so that he could meet with God. If the people wanted to be close with God, they would gather around the tabernacle. The high priest in particular had the special privilege of 
being the one who could go into the innermost part of that tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And there, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he would make atonement for the people of Israel. There it is that he would meet with God. This tabernacle, this tent of meeting is filled with furniture. And now here in Exodus 30, we're drawn to another piece of furniture in that tent. It's called the altar of incense. It was an altar that was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold. It was 18 inches wide by 18 inches deep. And it stood three feet tall. At each corner of this altar was placed a golden ring. And then poles of acacia wood were also made. Again, they were overlaid with gold and these poles would slide through these rings on the altar of incense so that no man, no human would touch the altar but that they could carry it with these poles. This altar was then placed there right in front of the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Right there, front and center, pushed up, as it were, against that veil, as close as it could get to the Ark of the Covenant, as close as it could get to the mercy seat without actually being in the Holy of Holies. And it was here where Aaron, the high priest, was to attend to this altar daily. Just as he tended to the lamps morning and evening, so he would also then burn incense morning and evening on this altar. A perpetual burning of incense would be there in the, in the, the tabernacle. This fragrant offering going up before the Lord. It was supposed to be a regular occurrence. We could even say it was a perpetual burning throughout all of the generations. It was never to go out. It was always to be taking place. And then we're given a prohibition. They were not to offer unauthorized fire on the altar or make burnt offerings or grain offerings or pour out drink offerings on the altar. This unauthorized fire could also be translated strange fire or foreign fire. If we would think that might not be a problem, we have to look no further than Leviticus 10 where Aaron's own sons... Nadab and Abihu, they offer strange fire, unauthorized fire before the Lord. And do you remember what happens when they do that? Fire comes out from before the Lord and consumes them and they die. They did not uphold God as holy. They did not glorify him before the eyes of the people and it cost them their lives. Holy fire on a holy altar was the only acceptable fire. And finally, we are told about how the high priest was to make atonement for the altar. He was to take blood of the sin offering of atonement. The sacrifice took place on the bronze altar that was outside of the tent. And then the priest would take some of that blood, bring it inside the tent... And put that blood on the horns of the altar to atone for the altar, to make it holy in the presence of God. 
this is all well and good, but as of yet, we don't know why this altar of incense is in the tabernacle. What's it there for? Why are the Israelites to do this? It doesn't even say in our text, right? Why is all of this happening? I believe as we take into consideration these verses and the rest of Scripture, we see that these offerings of incense on this altar were to represent the prayers of God's people. So we read about that today, didn't we? In Psalm 141. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So there is David saying, may my prayer be like incense that's going up before you. Or again, even in our scripture reading with Zechariah, what was he doing? He was offering incense on the altar at the hour of prayer, the time of prayer, and the people were gathered there for this time of prayer. And the angel comes and stands beside the altar and says what to him? God has heard your prayer. And God is going to answer your prayer. But then look at me with at another text of Scripture, Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. You knew I would get there sooner or later. Revelation chapter 8. Verse 3 and verse 4 and 5. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. There it is. Here in this vision that John has in these heavenly realms. There is an angel who has this censer in his hand and there's incense that's being offered in that and on the altar there. And where is the altar? The altar is before the very throne of God, just as it was in the tabernacle. There before the Ark of the Covenant. There before the footstool of the throne of God. So now, that was a copy of the heavenly reality of this altar of incense before the throne of God. And the smoke of the incense is going up with the prayers of the saints. What an amazing sight that John had of this incense, this smoke that rose up before the throne of God. Here, front and center before the throne is a place of prayer. Do you pray? Is prayer a priority in your life? Do you believe that prayer is powerful? Do you believe that God uses prayer? Do 
do you see prayer in this way right here, like Revelation 8 says? That when you pray, it's like your prayer is there before the very throne of God. Prayer is not powerful because we are powerful. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful. Prayer works not because we work, but because God is sovereign and in control of everything. Some people ask this question, if God is sovereign, why pray? If he is going to do what he is going to do, what difference does it make if I pray? Here is why we must pray. Because God so works in the hearts and lives of his people. He gives them new hearts and new lives and new minds. He renews their mind. He helps them to make right choices and a renewed will. He gives them fresh, fiery affections for the things of God. And when God does that, when God changes your mind and your will and your heart, then what are you going to pray? You are going to pray what God wants you to pray. And then God is going to get glory from the prayers that you offer up to him because you are praying in accordance with his will, with what he wants. And so often we ask because we have wrong motives. We ask because we want it for ourselves. But God is glorified to accomplish his sovereign purpose and his sovereign plan in this earth by the means of the prayers of the saints. Do you understand that? Do you realize that? Do you believe that? Let me say it again. God is accomplishing his sovereign will in this world through the means of our prayers. So that he is glorified. But there's another aspect, isn't there? What does that do for your life when you pray and you see God accomplish his will? It strengthens our faith. It helps us to persevere. It renews our strength in our sovereign Lord. It makes us get on our knees time and time and time again, knowing that he will hear and he will answer and he will provide and he will work. Look at this here, Revelation 8. So this beautiful picture, this smoke rising up, this incense rising up before God. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar. What is that? The prayers of the saints. And threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What is going on? The angel took, in a sense, these prayers of the saints and threw them on the earth. And something amazing and miraculous 
happened. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. God's judgment even came out of the prayers of the saints. God even was judging the world because of the prayers of the saints. What power there is in our prayers, even so much that God judges the world through our prayers. God so gives us a desire to pray to him, and so we are to perpetually pray. Pray without ceasing, and we are to persevere in our prayers. Luke 18, 1. Very simple, but what we need to hear. Luke 18, 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Dear brother and sister, have you lost heart? Or will you commit to pray again? Always pray and not lose heart. God is at work. God is faithful. God is strong. The priority of the prayer happens in our life because we have been bought with a price. God has taken sinners and he's made them saints <laughs> revelation 8 whose prayers were these they were the prayers of the saints the prayers of the holy ones the prayers of those who had the atonement applied to them the blood of the lamb applied to them so now they can offer up prayers to God and God hears them and God answers them because these are the prayers of the people that he has purchased through the death of his own son. Why would we ever not pray? Number two. When atonement is made, we understand the price of redemption when atonement is made, we understand the price of redemption. Our children often need to be taught valuable lessons. And most of our children at one point or another ask for something or want something. Pleading with a parent or a grandparent for something. And they hear this response. Money doesn't grow on trees, you know. Or, what do you think, I'm made out of money? How often do children not understand the price of $2 or $200? In their minds, there is no difference. It's a crucial lesson for children to learn, but it's also a crucial lesson for Christians to learn. Do you understand the price that has been paid for our redemption? And the census tax in Exodus 30 is a hands-on lesson in the price of redemption. When a census is taken, the people were to 
give a ransom for their life to the Lord. This ransom took the form of monetary payment. Everyone who was numbered was to pay half shekel, roughly the weight of eight pieces of candy. You can think about that if you have eight pieces of candy in your pocket. That's about a half shekel. It was an offering to the Lord. It was to be used in the service of the tent of meeting. So everyone 20 years old and upward were counted and were to give. And notice they were all to give the same amount. Rich people were not to give more. Poor people were not to give less. Everyone's life was the same price. No one is valued more over another. No one is to be seen as more important than anyone else. The rich were not to give more to demonstrate how rich they were. Nor were the rich to be coerced into giving more, saying, surely you can give more than half a shekel. And the poor had no excuse to give less because they were poor. They were not to flaunt how much they were in need. Everyone gave the same amount. No big people, no little people, only ransomed people. That was it. And such a payment is meant to put pride to death. The payment was a reminder of their sinfulness and the fact that they needed to be redeemed. No one could claim that they were worthy of their redemption. No one was worthy of their redemption. No one was worthy to be redeemed by God. Yet he provided a way for them, for their lives to be ransomed. And this is a snapshot, a picture of the fact that we are not worthy of our redemption. <laughs> you ever see that on a child's television program, maybe a cartoon? I have this picture in my mind of, of these Loyal subjects before their king crying out, we are not worthy, we are not worthy. Who does man usually say that before? Before an almighty and powerful and glorious king, one who has prestige and honor. We are not worthy before someone who is so great. But now think about it for the Christian we say, we are not worthy, we are not worthy of our redemption. And when we say we are not worthy, we are standing before the cross of Jesus Christ. We are not worthy to have someone die for us in our place on that cross to redeem us. We are not worthy of that. Yet God in his grace and his love and his mercy redeemed us on the cross. He redeemed us by sending his son. He redeemed us out of his love. We cannot do anything to make ourselves worthy of Christ's redemption. In fact, any worth that we receive comes from Christ's redemption. Christ died for us while we were still 
sinners. This payment also puts pride to death because it reminds us that God owns us. The people were to pay this price because God owned them. They were, in a sense, to pay God for their own lives. Who does God think that he is? He owns me? He thinks that he has the right to demand a ransom payment from me? He is the creator God. We owe him our existence. The only reason that you're here today, the only reason that you're breathing right now, the only reason why your heart is beating, why your lungs are being filled and exhaling, is because God is causing that to happen. God so willed that you would exist and that I would exist. This world would like to think of themselves as their own person, that they can do whatever they want to do. No one owns them. They are their own boss, their own master, a self-made man or woman. They created themselves who they want to be, but they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And by worshiping the creature rather than the creator, they are enslaved to their sin. This atonement, this ransom, this redemption, this price that is paid for people's lives also puts to death pride in us because it means that we can't trust man more than we trust God. What happens if the people numbered themselves and didn't pay the tax? What does it say there? A plague would come upon them. God's judgment would come upon them. David had a similar problem in 2 Samuel 24. He took a census of the people. Why would you take a census of the people? Oftentimes you would do this to know your military might. Look how many people we have. We must be strong. For so many, for the Israelites, for David, and for us, how many times do we think many people equates to great might? And if we have many people and we have great might, then we don't need a magnificent God. Why did God choose Israel? Why did he make them his people? Look with me for a moment at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 6 through 9. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you 
are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord who has brought you out with a mighty hand and, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. It wasn't because they were many. It wasn't because they were mighty. It was so the Lord might show his strength and might show his might. Do we ever trust the many because we think the many equals the mighty? That's the whole point why Yahweh calls himself the Lord of hosts. He can overcome a massive, mighty army with few. With little, with people who aren't much. Why does he do that? Because he wants to put on display his might, his strength. He says, I don't need many, I need a few. A few who I've set my love upon. A few who I have saved and redeemed. A few who will trust me more than in what their eyes can see. More than in their tally numbers of their senses. I need, I need to see the might of God. And so this census tax was to show them how great a cost was the price of their redemption. And do we know that price of our redemption? Mark ten forty five. What has Christ done for us? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The beauty about this snapshot of this atonement money that the Israelites were to give for their life is that it points us to a far greater reality of Jesus Christ giving his life as a payment for our lives. As him making the ransom payment that we needed, a payment that we could never pay no matter how hard we try. The price of our redemption was paid with nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. One more verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. 
1 Peter 1, 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, listen to this, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. It's no longer this census tax that you need to make an atonement for your lives. No amount of money, no gold, no silver. It's not perishable things like that. It's not the amount that's in your bank account, but what were you bought with? What were you ransomed with? Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was his precious blood that paid the price for our redemption. It was a costly price paid by the perfect lamb so that you and I might find life. We understand the ultimate price of our redemption was Christ bearing the wrath of God in our place for us on that cross who died the death that we deserve to die. Through Christ's sacrifice, life has been given to you, a life that is sustained by God, a life that is protected by God with the full assurance and guarantee that you are at one with God and you will be at one with God forever. Jesus Christ has ransomed our souls and that ransom is initiated by God himself so that we might be at one with the Lord forever. And so we look to the cross that is where Christ solved the dilemma when he died for us so that we might live to God. If you're looking for something to be thankful for this week, consider the price of your redemption. Here's a song that I think we've sung, sung here before. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. By your perfect sacrifice I've been brought near. Your enemy you've made your friend, pouring out the riches of your glorious grace. Your mercy and your kindness know no end. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may your word take root in our hearts. that we might be those who prioritize prayer and daily remember the price of our redemption in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is no longer silver or gold. It is the precious blood of Christ that makes it so we can be at peace with you. Father, if there is someone here today who does not know you, who is not at peace with you, who has not put their faith and trust in Christ, may today they come. May today be the day of salvation. May they turn from their sin. And 
and may they trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Thank you that we can trust you, we who are not many, we who are not mighty, but we know and trust that you are powerful and you are faithful and that we will overcome this world and sin and death and the grave. Let us have ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.